Well, church, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts, Acts chapter 9 this morning as we continue our sermon series that we left off at the end of November to take a little break for Advent and for our January series in Titus chapter 2. We're now back to Acts where we consider uh, the church who are the witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 1 through 22 this morning, but before we do, I thought we should take just a moment to go back and remember Acts, where we've been thus far. From the beginning, what we've seen is we've seen a church gathering together under the direction of the Lord. The Lord directs by his personal presence, the Lord directs by his word, and the Lord directs by means of his Holy Spirit in the midst of the congregation. Acts began with a commission of the risen Jesus himself, a commission that was given to the disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You remember that, right? The disciples, they gather. There's as many as 120 in an upper room gathered together, and they're gathered there for prayer. But they're also there to gather themselves and order themselves according to the word, as Peter opens up the word to them and explains to them that they have an apostle missing, and his place needs to be filled. So the Lord is showing right from the beginning of Acts that he's the king, and he's the head of the church. And so we find our orders from his word, and according to his wisdom alone, and the Holy Spirit comes and he fills his church and he sends them into the streets, into the streets to be what, right? To be his witnesses. They bear witness to Jesus, the risen Lord and his gospel. And the Holy Spirit fills the church in that way. And then by the time we get to the end of the the second chapter of Acts, we have 3,000 people who have already been added to their number and they're already regularly fellowshipping together. And they're gathering to practice the common disciplines of grace together. They're devoting themselves to the word and to prayer and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. This pattern that we see of of the church begins as soon as anyone is added to their number. The church are Jesus's witnesses, even as they live their lives together. Their life together is a witness to his gospel. That's important for us at Cross Point Coast. We believe that part of our disciple-making strategy, part of the work of the way God has ordered his church, is that the way that we are together bears witness to his glory. So even when we're gathered in a place like this, we are bearing witness to the gospel in our community. In Acts chapter 3, we find the disciples again. They're in public places. Peter, he's working a miracle, and he's speaking the truth of the gospel there in Acts chapter 3. And you can see how Jesus, and by means of his Holy Spirit in the church, is fulfilling his command through these witnesses to bring the gospel to Jerusalem, the first place that he mentions. Now, it doesn't seem to take but a matter of days, and the church is already in a great deal of trouble. It's already being persecuted by the authorities in Jerusalem. The church is meeting resistance from the ways of the world and rejection of Jesus the Christ. Peter and John, they're brought before a council. 
And it says just right in that same paragraph where they're brought before a council to be interrogated and be told not to preach any longer in the name of Jesus, it also says that the number had risen to about 5,000. So right in the middle of persecution beginning to break out, the Lord is continuing to break out more witnesses for his gospel. As the church receives the word, the word of this persecution that Peter and John have been brought before the council, their response is instructive to us. They don't hide. They don't pray for safety. What do they pray for? They pray for boldness. Boldness to go and preach the gospel in face of whatever they may be found. And the church continues to spread as witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, by the time we get to Acts chapter 5, we see uh, the early faithful churches faced with also internal conflict and impurity. We have Ananias and Sapphira, and they seek to deceive the apostles and to lie to the Holy Spirit. As the Lord brings judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira, he makes it clear that it is his job to see to and guard the purity and testimony of the church. We don't know the hearts of men and women in our midst. We can see their fruit, but we do not know their hearts. The Lord does, and he will see to his church. Now, in the middle of all this conflict, Persecution continues. The church's witness to the gospel also continues. The leaders of the church, they continue to seek faithful means and faithful leaders to tend to the mission of the church. And so we have the commissioning of the seven, and the seven are there to care for the widows and the daily distribution of the food. One of the men who was in, um, um, one of the seven men who were to be about the daily distribution was a man named Stephen. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is confronted by the enemies of the gospel, and Stephen shares an extended sermon as the fulfillment uh, of how Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And Stephen continues to bear witness to Jesus and his name, and he does so even in the face of his own death. And in the face of his own death, the church scatters but they scatter, bearing witness to his great name. So what we have is Jesus growing his church to be witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, where we left off was in the middle of the breaking out of a great persecution. And what we discover is that in the midst of this tragic witness and persecution There's a mastermind behind it all, and his name is Saul of Tarsus. Now, before we go to our reading this morning, where we get to know this man Saul much better, let's remember the central theme of Acts. Just to orient us well, why are we studying this book? What does it have to say to the church this morning? R.C. Sproul says this, the theme of Acts is this, the church's obedience to Christ's commission and commandment to be his witnesses as the ascended king, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. What is the church's job? To protect themselves in the midst of persecution, right? To take down the persecutors, to expose them for who they really are. No. The job of the church is to be faithful witnesses in obedience to the command of the Lord in every circumstance that he is the ascended king, king of kings, And Lord of Lords. And the fact is what we see in Acts is something that's instructive to us in our culture today. 
Jesus is not simply saving individuals. What we see in Acts is Jesus is redeeming a church. And it's not just a church. It's a church who has a purpose, a purpose to glorify his names in their daily lives by bearing witness to their redeemer. Listen, the church, Jesus is not simply saving individuals. He's saving a people, a people to himself who at risk of everything glorify the name of the Lord. I believe that's not just a story of Acts. I think that's what he's doing today. Right in our midst, he's growing up a people in this county. So let's consider Acts chapter 9. I hope you have your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible, make sure you grab one of the paperback Bibles that are nearby. Let's follow along together in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22 this morning. You'll want to follow along. It's a pretty lengthy reading, so let's pay attention together. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he's with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and who called, and of those who called upon his name? And he has not come here for this purpose, but to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word and that we have it before us. And we have this record of Jesus by his spirit establishing his church. Lord, we see that we, we fall in this line. We're reading our genealogy here. We are in the line of the, the Jews who went out from Jerusalem, including this great persecutor of the church, whom you redeemed for your name's sake, went into the world, and this gospel has now come to us. We stand in the line of witnesses. So, Lord, I pray that you would instruct us by your word, that your gospel would redeem, and that if there is anyone here who has not yet believed, you would cause scales to fall off the eyes, and they would see the glory of the Lord and believe. Lord, this is our hope from your word this morning. It's a great deal to ask, but it's the work of your word. So we trust you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we're going to do a few things as we walk through the passage. And the first thing, really we've already done some of this already, is I want us to remember Saul of Tarsus. Remember that we first met Saul at the end of chapter 7. We're told that the mob who stoned Jesus laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here they are. They're going to stone one young man for speaking boldly about Jesus according to the scriptures. They're laying down their robe before another man who seems to be running the show, a man named Saul. We're told a few verses later that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. It was as though he himself were throwing every stone. And we see that Saul understood this in some of his later writings. Saul was there. He likely orchestrated likely the whole of the persecution as he kept the ball moving forward to get the way of Jesus out of the land. And now we see Saul again. At the beginning of our passage, we see in verse 1, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And here he goes to the high priest and he gets permission and authority to go to Damascus and continue the rampage there. The beginning of our passage, we see that he is still on a rampage to hunt down the Christians who fled Jerusalem in the midst of the persecution that began with Stephen. But we don't get to dwell there very long. We see that while Saul is is on this work, he's going to a town to do this thing and that thing, right? As James would point. But the Lord is sovereign and he has another plan for Saul when he would get to that town. Just a few miles outside of the city, we have the conversion of Saul. I want to take just a second for those of you who may not know the story of the New Testament. When we're talking about Saul, We're talking about a man that you and I know by the name of Paul, all right? Uh, Along the way in the scriptures, there are a number of times where the Lord God changes the name of a person from one name to another. This actually is not one of those instances. This is a man named Saul. It's a, a great Jewish name with a great history going all the way back to King Saul, right? And here he's known among the Jews by the name of Saul. We would see that as God would himself would declare in this passage, 
God's intention for Saul was not that he would remain a great man in the line of the Jews and, and, and simply going about the persecution of these Christians, but rather he would be sent out from among them with word about Jesus Christ, that he himself would become a part of the way and he would become a great proclaimer and planter of a proclaimer of the gospel and planter of churches. In fact, what we discover about this man named Saul is that as he went to these Gentile places, Greek-speaking places, he became the author of much of the New Testament, about half the New Testament. And we also see that he becomes known by the name Paul, which would have been his Greek name. So that's why we see the change in the names. It has more to do with the, the people who were calling him his name. When he was around the Jews, he would have been known as Saul. And when he was around the Greek-speaking places, he became known as Paul. It's the same person. Now, what we have is Saul. And he is being described in Acts chapter 9 is being converted by Jesus himself, by Jesus' appearing. Now, this conversion of Saul is recorded for us a number of times throughout the Scripture and alluded to a number of times. In Acts alone, this story is told three different times. In Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 22, and in Acts chapter 26. And each time, we're given a little bit more insight into what exactly took place on that day on the road to Damascus, just outside of the city. What I've done, I've taken a little bit of a liberty here to grab those three passages, put them up in front of me on my screen, and write down everything that I saw, sort of to take all the details and put them together in one place. And it's quite the account. I want to share it with you. From our passage, we see that he was on his way. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Friends, that's the big event, all right? A light shining around him. And Saul, he falls to the ground in the face of this big event. And he, Saul, hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is recorded in all three accounts. And then we have this additional detail from Acts chapter 26. Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. We have the Lord God directing the pathway for Saul. It's much like an oxen who's being directed by the ox cart driver. And often the ox would kick back against the cart and could potentially destroy the cart as it kicks back and refuses to go where the master is leading it. And so the the master would put these spikes of sort along the front of the cart. So when the ox would kick and reject the way of the master who is controlling it, it, it would hurt itself. And that's the image that Jesus is giving to Saul. It's hard to kick against the goads, but the fact is, I am the master, and you will go where I send you. Saul replies right away, who are you, Lord? It's an important statement. It's a response. It's recorded a number of times throughout the scripture when someone calls out, when the Lord God calls out to a a person. And here, Saul, going about the persecution of Jesus, And his church replies, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. This also is recorded in all three retellings of this story. 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, Jesus says, stand upon your feet and enter to the city and you will be told what you are to do. You see, he's the master. He's in control and he's telling Saul exactly what's going to happen. Now, Acts chapter six adds this lengthy bit of detail. Jesus continues, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Do you hear the Lord Jesus' commissioning of Saul to deliver a people to open their eyes when Saul himself is being struck blind. Story continues. The men who were traveling with him, they stood there speechless. Now there's a few things that they saw and there's a few things that they didn't. They saw a light and they heard a voice, but they did not see Jesus himself and they did not understand the words. And as they are standing there dumbfounded as Paul himself is struck blind and is Struck down by the words of Jesus, Saul then rises from the ground. And although his eyes were not open, were opened, they did not see anything. He'd been struck blind. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight. And he uses those three days. We're told that the Ananias would find a man praying. He was fasting, not eating or drinking for these three days, praying, calling out, to the Lord his God. Now the theme of this account is this. I hope you know it already. The absolute lordship of Jesus Christ, even over a persecutor. He is the Lord. He is risen, which is the testimony, the witness of the church. He is the risen Lord. And being raised, he is alive and on the throne of heaven. And he is bringing order and purpose to this world as he brings his redemption, being made known through his church. He is in absolute control. Saul was going to Damascus on a rampage, and his purpose was to wrestle control of a situation that was going out of control through murderous threats. That was Saul's purpose. But when the Lord speaks, and the Lord's calls, and the Lord works, he demonstrates that even a young, powerful, influential up-and-comer cannot escape the purposes of the Lord for his church. Now, as Joel and I were thinking about this passage this week, we noticed something. We just spent a whole month together in one sentence in the scriptures in Titus chapter 2. And that sentence begins in this way, for the grace of God has appeared. What do we have in this passage? What do we have but the grace of God appearing? When I read Acts chapter 9, I see the grace of God appearing to a man utterly undeserving. And Saul reflects on this in his letters. He knows that he is the chief of sinners. That he is a man who is utterly unworthy, a persecutor of the Lord himself. And yet, Saul is doggedly pursued by grace appearing. 
We see that Saul is becomes, by grace appearing, bringing salvation, trained in godliness. He becomes one who is a dogged advocate for the grace of God. He is the grace theologian. He knows grace and he declares grace. And we ought go to his writings to see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ appearing. There's a, a question that must have struck Paul to the Saul to the heart. This question, why are you persecuting me? I wonder. We aren't really told a whole lot of information about what was going on in Saul's mind, except for that he did not yet have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not believe. Why are you persecuting me? Now Saul asked the one who is speaking, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord gives a very peculiar answer here. It's an answer that we have to hear. We can receive encouragement from and we can receive instructions from. Who are you, Lord? The first part is simple. It's Jesus. It's me. Yeah, I'm alive. I'm in the light. I'm glorious. You're not. You're in the dust on the ground where I knocked you there. I'm alive. It's Jesus. But Jesus continues there in verse 5. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now that's curious, isn't it? It's the light of the glory of God that blinds Saul. And the other men do not understand. But here what we have is clear and weighted evidence that when Saul is terrorizing and persecuting the church, the, the church that Saul is actually ravaging against the name of Jesus Christ. We see Saul was ravaging the church in verse 3, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm Jesus, Lord and Savior of the people that you're persecuting like that. He doesn't say that. Jesus says, when you go house to house, and you lay waste to my church, you are laying waste to my body. I am the one whom you are persecuting. Jesus manifests his glory in the world through his church. Friends, that is an encouragement to us. When a man goes about terrorizing the church, we have Jesus personally present to address the matter. And we have a great encouragement from this, but it's also instructive for us. Even to those who seek to persecute Jesus, Jesus is turning even them to the purposes of his will to bear witness to his name. Friends, I don't want to be turned. I don't want to be knocked down. I want to go with the way of the Lord. And what we are seeing here is the way of the Lord in his church, his body is to bear witness to his name. And so church, the instructive reality for us is while it's encouraging to hear that Jesus is with us so much so that he is us, we are his body, he is our head. There is a way for us to walk. There is a mission for us to be about. And there's something interesting also in the middle of this, that as Saul is knocked down and is 
transformed on this road, Saul is sent to the church. After Saul's intentions are literally knocked to the ground, he's going there to persecute, and instead he's converted. Saul is sent into Damascus. Now, it's a powerful irony that that he's sent into Damascus to wait on what? He's waiting on a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ to come and teach him. Isn't that interesting? He's on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. And here he is going into Damascus to hear from the church. Saul has already received a new Lord. The Lord's calling the shots. And Saul, by grace through faith, is listening. He's received new marching orders because he's received a new commander-in-chief. He's seen the glory of the Lord, and he's ready to obey. But notice that Jesus tells Saul to go into Damascus, not immediately to become his witness, but rather to become one who is instructed by his body the church. Verse 10 says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Let's remember, Saul's on the way to imprison this man. This man is highly aware of the fact that Saul is there to imprison this man. This man is sent to bring word of the gospel, healing and sight to his eyes. I want us to fully understand the importance and irony of what Jesus does here. Jesus sends Saul, who's bent on going to Damascus to persecute the church, to sit under the ministry of the church in the person of a faithful disciple named Ananias. Friends, there's something instructive for us, every one of us there, even Saul. Saul saw the glory of the face of Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself bears witness to the gospel in his risen lordship, to Saul himself. Saul was the only one there who saw and understood. Saul, saw Jesus. And he needs the church. Jesus' way in this world is that he would send his disciples, those whom he had chosen, to his church to be instructed according to his word. Friends, it doesn't matter where you came from. Your place is with the church. This is where we belong together. Disciples pointing one another to the glory of the grace that can be found in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, according to his chosen way, is that he would grow his disciples together. This is the place where the gospel is proclaimed. It's where it is explained. It's where scales fall off of people's eyes. Their minds and their bodies are healed. And the Lord bears witness to their soul and their faith is increased. And they walk in the way of obedience, which is to bear witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. More than that, this is the business of the church. This is what we do. The world is often and always breathing out threats, vile words against the church. That's what the world does. It's good at it. It's consistent. But it's the business of the church not to run and find safety. It's the business of the church with Ananias as our instructor here to go and to seek and save the lost. It's the mission of the church to point our communities to Jesus. 
We today have the same commission of both Saul and Ananias. And that commission is to go, go to the lost, even our persecutors, go to those who have caused us suffering and preach the gospel. I've said a number of times, Ananias is our instructor, but let us remember there is a first preacher and that first preacher is Jesus himself. Ananias was concerned to go to the one who was persecuting him. Jesus went to the one who was persecuting him. Even while we were yet enemies, Christ loved us. This is the mission of the church. Saul is more than just sent to the church. He sent for the church. Jesus explicitly makes this known to him. In verses 15 and 16, we're, we're told, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen servant of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul is sent for the sake of Jesus and to proclaim his name. It's by means of this proclamation that the church would grow through the witness of Saul, through the witness of Ananias, through the witness of Barnabas, through the witness of Stephen. These, the witnesses, are the means by which Jesus would grow his church. And he's sent to suffer, as is the case with everyone I just mentioned. Jesus gives this commission explicitly to Saul. I want to go back to Acts chapter 26, where that that commission is given again in a little bit more detail. Acts 26, 16 through 18. Rise and stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I wonder why Paul so often calls himself a servant at the beginning of his letters. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what it means to be brought into the church. It's what it means for Saul and it's what it means for you and me. We are appointed just like Saul as servants and witnesses to the gospel. Saul becomes with the other apostles a first-hand witness to Jesus. And they bear witness and they record what they see and what they heard from him. And we become witnesses through them, through Saul and the other apostles. We become witnesses. It's through the word of their testimony that we have turned from darkness to light and that we go with news of Christ, the light that has shown into our hearts the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's by means of that turning that we receive forgiveness of sin and sanctification by faith. Saul is sent to the church, and Saul is sent for the church, and this is instructive for us. And then Saul As he's sent to the church and in the midst of the church and as the church, Saul joins the church in what the church does. Saul proclaims Jesus, the Son of God. Now there are two things that we see in the days following the conversion of Saul. You can see some of those things taking place beginning at verse 19 and 20 and following. 
we see that there are two things that are extremely important for us to understand about the believer as we watch the life of Saul. The first is this. I've said it a number of times. I'll say it again. Saul is with the disciples. In that paragraph there in verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. That's where a believer belongs, with the disciples together. It's true that the believer has become a follower of Jesus, but it's also true that Jesus is alone our Savior and our friends. And it is also true that Jesus has been explicit that the church is his body. We just don't have a Savior and friend apart from the church. But rather, we are redeemed into a church to be among a people. It's not because the church is cool. It's not because the church is good. It's because God has made a church. Because God has called disciples to be together his witnesses. That's who we are, servants. Servants, just not alone. To be the church is to be where Jesus is and to be how Jesus is making himself known in the world. It seems to me that it would be really neat if Jesus would just come to each individual, explain the gospel in the light of his glory. Of course, half of them don't understand when he speaks like that and simply make the gospel known in that way. But a number of times throughout the scriptures, Jesus explains, particularly in Ephesians, that he's making known the manifold wisdom of his grace through his church. And you know what the angels are watching? All the powers and principalities are watching how the church, these people redeemed by grace through faith, have been so transformed to glory in Christ and bear witness to his name. Friends, there's something that's beautiful there and speaks of the glory of our God that we would go from his enemies like Saul to proclaimers of his great name. That's why we're together. We're together to the glory of our great God. And that's why Saul does the second thing. He doesn't just go and be with the disciples and say, shoo, good to be here on the right side of history, right? Saul says, It says that he immediately proclaims Jesus. Verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. The one who repented of his sin and placed his faith in Jesus and knows Jesus to be sufficiently the one to redeem him begins immediately to share Jesus with others. Now it's true that Saul's a bit different. He's a, he's a, a, a unique convert. Saul was a serious student of the scriptures. He already knew these scriptures quite well, and he would write the rest of them, okay? (laughs) Jesus, Saul knew Jesus well. He was an enemy, but he knew him. He knew him as a persecutor. He knew all the arguments. It's true, Saul was unique, such that he would begin to immediately proclaim because he had some insider information. But at the same time, Saul has Exactly the same thing that every single believer in this room has. Saul knew the depth of his sin. And Saul knew the hope of forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Friends, that qualifies you. 
Do you know the reason, King? Do you know the depravity from which you have been rescued and the means of that rescue in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you do, immediately you would begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Fundamentally, all that one needs in order to proclaim is a knowledge by which you yourself were saved. That's why we very often tell our testimony when we share the gospel. We see that Saul himself does this. Acts chapter 26 isn't just Luke's telling of the account again. It's actually the apostle Paul, Saul, telling the story of how he was saved, how he was converted on the road, but not because anyone was saved by his faith. This is important and instructive for us as we share our testimony together. The reason why we share our testimony so often when we share about the gospel of Jesus is because it's in the context of our lives that we saw the application of grace, that we saw the application of the two twin essential doctrines about salvation, that we saw that apart from Christ, I was lost in my sin. That is not an abstract reality. That is true of me. I was lost And it's in the context of the sharing of our testimony that we don't share our lives, but rather the second reality that in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the victory of his resurrection, I have been forgiven and reconciled to my God. You see, that's not about me. You actually know very little details about me right now. I could share them with you and exactly how that took place, including the story from the scriptures about how it took place that he purchased the right to save me. A true Christian's testimony isn't about us. A true Christian testimony is about Jesus, who has rescued us by means of these doctrines, these teachings of grace. Now, it's interesting. There's irony all over this story. Saul goes to Damascus to wreak havoc, right? It says it at the beginning. It says it throughout these few chapters. Saul is wreaking havoc everywhere he goes. Saul came to Damascus to wreak havoc upon the church of Jesus Christ. But through the powerful and merciful confrontation of Jesus on the road, Jesus wreaks havoc on Saul's intentions. And then Saul, by grace through faith, begins to turn the world upside down as he bears witness to the risen Christ. Friends, when the grace of the Lord appears, it is by design, it is by the design of the Lord that he would wreak havoc on your life. Because apart from Christ, our lives are about other things. But when the Lord invades, he changes everything, not just a a little bit of confession and a changing of a few behaviors. He changes the whole orientation of our lives and commissions us as his servants and children, redeeming us into a church. He changes our community. He changes our disposition. He changes our destination. It is the business of the Lord by design that he would turn our world upside down. So this morning I pray that you would be confronted with Jesus. You would be confronted with Jesus in his word, that his light of the glory of his face would shine through his gospel, that you would see this morning, everyone, that apart from Christ, you are lost in your own sin. 
And that because of his sacrifice on the cross in your place, paying the just penalty for your sin and his resurrection to purchase for us eternal life, you too may be forgiven and reconciled to God. And so I want to pray these two things as we close. I pray that you would see with a deeper conviction these twin implications for the believer in Jesus this morning. I I hope that what you will see is your place with Saul and all those who have come before us is with the church, the, the, the gathering of the redeemed, that we would grow in Christ together. We are in the right place together. We're not the right people for the right job, but we have the right God and he's working in our midst. And secondly, our place together as we are together isn't to just be, phew, so nice to be together. It's nice to be a community church, right? No. Our place together is to be witnesses. Our place to, together is to realize that it's the Lord who has put us together for a purpose. To share his word. To share the word of his gospel in our communities as we bear witness with sacrifice. As we bear witness in the face of risk. As we bear witness with words and the way of our life together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that what you have done is you have called us. You have interrupted us. We have a way that we would live, but you have come and you have declared you are the Lord God. Lord, I pray that you would do that again today. You would interrupt us in the ways that we have gone back to our old ways, in our old pursuits. I pray that you would interrupt us again this morning. I pray that you would bring salvation where there is not yet faith. Lord, I pray that you would bring interruption where there is not yet obedience. That you would bring witness to a church that is in need of bearing witness to your resurrection, your salvation, the glory of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. Our hope is in you alone. You are the head of your church. And we confess this morning the glory and joy to know that we are your body. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.